Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. So just for a minute, imagine that you are an Israelite at this particular point in redemptive history. Let's just think about the action that has unfolded over the last few weeks in your life. The 10 plagues that have come upon Egypt. Then the miraculous Passover Exodus moment running out of the city at midnight. Only to be followed by a supernatural parting of the Red Sea. And so today we're joining the Israelites, the wide-eyed Israelites on the east shore of the Red Sea. And the very first thing that they do is sing a song of praise. Exodus 15 is called the Song of Moses, and the people of Israel lift their voices in praise. Now, this chapter tells us a lot about singing and a lot about praise and a lot about song. And we're just going to look at three reasons why they are singing. And these are helpful for us, too. And so let's look at number one. God's salvation demands it. There's no doubt that the Red Sea situation was an impossible situation. We must remember that this was a battleground. The Israelites are camped, they're trapped, and the Egyptians are bearing down on them. But in a moment of absolute intervention, God splits the sea and they go across on dry ground. At the same time as they are being rescued, the the Egyptians are being drowned at the mighty hand of God. And so verse 1, Moses says this, Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It doesn't get more realistic, literalistic than that. Not only does Moses declare this, this isn't just a theology, this is a song of praise. Then Miriam joins in right at the end, uh, verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. Miriam, the sister of Aaron, repeats the same chorus. And she even takes a tambourine and begins to dance and sing to the chorus. In verse 21, it says, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's just allow that to sink in. This is the chorus of this anthem. The chorus of the anthem is a putting together of two things. One is rescue and the other is judgment. And we find that in the Psalms, these often come out too. They are called imprecatory Psalms. In other words, it is the glorifying of God because of just judgment. Now, we spoke quite a lot about that last Sunday. And if you missed it, I know it was technical. I'd really invite you to go and download last Sunday's message and learn about the importance of theocracy and redemptive judgment. Because this song is written all about redemptive judgment. God's redemption requires a response, and the response is to sing. You see, this Red Sea moment is a picture of God's grace 
and of God's wrath. I mean, think about it. The Passover moment points us to Christ's death. And in Christ's death, we see the wrath of God being poured out on Christ because of our sin. And so we have wrath, and from that comes grace. The crossing of the Red Sea, on the other hand, points us to the resurrection of Christ. And so we have the death of Christ, and we have the resurrection of Christ. And all of this glorious truth sparks praise. It brings forth worship. Philip Riken, he says this, he says the history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, this drama is actually a musical. It is impossible even to conceive of biblical Christianity without songs of praise. You see, Christianity has always been from the very beginning a singing religion. And the reason why they sing, the reason why they are rejoicing is because of sovereign grace. We are saved by grace, not by works. If it was by works, then who would we praise but ourselves, at least our contribution. But the, the Bible is full of songs of praise because God gets all the glory. Salvation is all of grace. And so salvation demands a response, and the response is praise. Number two, God's character deserves this kind of response. Have a look at this. In the song, it really is a wonderful commentary on the attributes of God. Moses is singing about who God is. So we've looked at what he's done in his salvation but Moses sees the God behind the salvation. Look at verse 2. He says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. You see, what we see here is that God is personal. The first thing that we are invited to see is that God is personal. He is my God, my strength, my song, my salvation. What Moses is showing us here is that there's a real relationship between the people of Israel and the almighty God. Although he is mighty, he is not far. He is close and he is personal. The next attribute we see here is in verses 3 through 6. And that is that God is powerful. God is not only personal, but God is powerful. Look at this, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 5, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. There is no doubt that he is praising God here because he fought for them. God fought on behalf of the people of Israel. And what we see here is that the wrath of God was poured out on the Egyptians. Now, this idea of the wrath of God, again, as we spoke about last week, 
is an uncomfortable thought for us to consider. But I want you to see that Moses is not just writing a theology text on the wrath of God. He includes this concept of God's power and wrath as part of the song. It's something that we as Christians should rejoice in. And so the God of the Bible is called by many names. We see God as a king. We see God as a father. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is a shepherd. But right here, we are told that God is a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior, a man of war. We need all of these names to get a view and a vision of who God really is. But let me just say this. It's not wrath like you might think about. It's, it's not a human kind of wrath. You see, God is not a hot-headed uh, deity who flies off the handles. No, God is not a temperamental man like you and I. God is righteous when he has anger. He expresses righteous anger and his wrath is just and he will punish sinners. Otherwise, he is unjust. And so when we consider the wrath of God, we must realize it in light of all of his other attributes. Don't forget that our whole salvation rests on the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross and there on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. That is a critical part of how we are saved. We are not saved by God just turning a blind eye to our sin. No, no. God actually poured out wrath upon Christ so that we would be given grace without uh, demeaning or diminishing God's justice. And so Christ receives judgment so that we can receive mercy. And so God is a mighty warrior king because on the cross, Jesus goes to war on our behalf. Jesus goes to war against sin, against Satan, and against death. And on the cross, Jesus conquers. On the cross, Jesus receives the wrath of God in our place. And then he rises victoriously and crushes the serpent's head. And on that point, we can say, amen. We need a warrior king like Jesus. The next thing we see is God is holy. Look at verse 11. He then says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The holiness of God is probably the attribute that Christians today most misunderstand or undervalue or don't think about enough. Whereas here we are seeing that Moses sees it as critical to all of his doing. You see, God in all of his ways is perfect. In his mercy, he is perfect. As well as in his judgment, he is perfect. God is utterly unique. He is distinct and he is perfect. He is like no one. And so he is holy, set apart above and beyond all we could ever think or imagine. And then God is love. And I love the way Moses puts all of these attributes together. He, he doesn't put them up against one another. They all form part of the anthem of praise. God is love. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, the people you bought. 
You see, this word steadfast love here is the Hebrew word hesed. And the Hebrew word hesed is a covenant type of love. It's not just a kind of casual, I love ice cream kind of love. No, this is a covenantal marriage type of love. And God has chosen to love the Israelites. God has chosen to love the Hebrews. He did not choose to love the Egyptians in this way. And God did that because that's what he decided to do. He chose for himself a people. He chose for himself a bride, a people whom he would set his love upon and redeem. His covenant love was aimed towards the Israelites and he bought them, the text tells us. You can read a bit more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. I really encourage you to read that. Our third and our final reason for singing is God's faithfulness drives it. The song of Moses is driven by God's faithfulness. If you analyze it this way, you can see that verses 1 through 12 looks back at salvation accomplished. They've been rescued. But then from verses 13 to 18, it is looking forward to what God is still going to do. And so we sing songs of praise because of what God has already done. But we also sing songs of praise because of what God is still going to do. Have a look at verse 13. He says, you have guided them, the people of God, by your strength to your holy abode, your place of dwelling. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The Philistines are trembling. Verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And so news has got out. The news has got out that the people of Israel, this mixed multitude of people that have been rescued from Egypt are now on their way and the nations around Canaan are trembling. Verse 17, you, God, will bring them in. You'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made For your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, Moses is not only singing a song of God's power that draws the people out. He's also singing a song of God's power to draw them in. The point is this. Songs of praise are not only about what we've been saved from, but also about what we've been saved into a glorious inheritance. And he puts those two things together, the old, the old life and the new life and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. You see, at this particular point, Israel have begun their journey towards Canaan. That's where, this is the whole reason they've been drawn out. They've been drawn out so that he could draw them into what they call the Holy Land. But as we are going to see, as we go through the next few chapters, there is a long delay coming. And we see a glimpse of that, the reason why in the text today. And so Moses is rejoicing because of God's future faithfulness. Now, I want you to notice what he says in verse 17. Verse 17 is interesting. Here he is anticipating 
two mountains, the Mount of Sinai and then later Mount Zion in Canaan. Look at verse 17. It says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Now, this idea or this concept of the mountain of the Lord or the holy mountain or the mountain of God actually is going to become a really key feature in God's dealings with the people of Israel. And it's going to come uh, through the text on numerous occasions. So I just want to say a few things about this mountain. The text here tells us that this mountain is going to function like a sanctuary. Sanctuary meaning a holy place, a place of God's dwelling. Now, immediately you should be thinking Mount Sinai, because in chapter 19, when we get there shortly, we're going to see that God is going to descend upon Mount Sinai and God's presence is going to envelop Mount Sinai. And it's going to be like a sanctuary where God will meet with his people. And this theme actually runs all the way from the very beginning of the Bible through all the way to the end of the Bible. Scholars actually tell us that the Garden of Eden was placed on or near a mountain. And it doesn't say it specifically in Genesis 1 and 2, but what we do read is that all the rivers in Eden ran out of Eden. In other words, Eden was an elevated high place. And we also know that Eden was a dwelling place for God's presence. And so in a sense, Eden was a holy mountain, a place where God met with Adam and Eve, the very presence of God in a temple like a sanctuary. Furthermore, think of what happened when Noah's ark settled. It settled on the Mount of Ararat. This mini theocracy, the people of God, the animals together, kept by God, sovereignly kept together, come to a resting place, rest upon the mountain of the Lord, the appointed mountain, the mountain of the Lord. God meets them on the mountain. Then we see in the New Testament, many examples, but just one for today, Jesus goes up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and the glory of God envelops them. You see, this theme or idea of the mountain becomes very important. In fact, for the Israelites, that's the next stop. The next major stop on their journey now will be Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God is going to descend in a firestorm. God's going to come down and there's going to be hail and lightning and fire. The very theophany of God, the very presence of God taking on visible form. And there and then God is going to give the law and God is going to teach the people about the tabernacle. And they're going, to, they're going to learn how to house or how to host the presence of God in their midst. Now, here's what I want you to see. Moses knows this mountain. Moses knows how to get to Mount Sinai because it was at Mount Sinai when God met him in the burning bush. Back in chapter 3, it's the same place. And so this mountain in verse 17 that they are now journeying towards is an important mountain. It's the place where Moses received his commissioning. It's where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush as a flaming fire. 
fire, the very same fire that will come down on Mount Sinai is where Moses was first called. And so let's read that again in Exodus 3, because I want you to put these things together in your mind. Moses is really, it's really important for you to see. Exodus 3, 1 and 2. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Remember, he had fled to Midian, and there he got married. And this is now 80 years later when God appears to Moses, 80 years after his birth. It says, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. So he went quite far, he crossed over, and came to Horeb. Now, Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. It's exactly the same place. All scholars agree. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This isn't just any mountain. This is the mountain of God. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. You see, at this point, the reason they are singing is because they're going back to that mountain. They're going to encounter God. They're going to see the presence of God as a flaming fire. And there is hope and there is joy and there is expectation because the future looks bright. Now, we must not forget that on this journey all the way up till now, they've been led, haven't they? We learned about that in chapter 13. They've been led by the pillar of fire and the cloud. But now what I want you to see is that the singing, the song of Moses suddenly gives way. And it moves from singing to sinning. Because in verse 22, the text takes a sharp turn. And what we see here is that the faithfulness of God is now being juxtaposed with the unfaithfulness of Israel. It's, it's, it hasn't been long after the Red Sea rescue that they go from singing to sinning. This, this praise party quickly descends into a pity party. And so let's read from verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Now they're on their way to Sinai. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, this particular story actually fits better with chapter 16 and chapter 17. But it's almost like a prologue to what's about to happen. Because this becomes an important transition in Israel's story. Because what's going to happen here is actually going to be a pattern in the people of Israel's lives. This really becomes a characteristic that we are not to copy in the people of Israel. And that is they are a grumbling, moaning bunch. And this leads them often to compromise. They are complaining and that complaining often gives way to compromise. And so what we will see is that from this point, they're going to dwell here for a few weeks. And then it will be a two-month journey to Sinai. And at Sinai, they end up camping there for a year and thereafter, it takes them 40 years in the wilderness before they get to Canaan. And so the situation here is bleak, isn't it? 
They've been traveling for three days in a hot desert. Men, women, children, livestock. And I think at this point, they've run out of water. This is why they are thirsty. This is why they are angry. This is why they are grumbling. Look at verse 22. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So you can only imagine now the joy as they come upon what seems to be a spring, the spring of Marah. And as they see it in the distance, and they, I reckon they were running towards it, and some people just dived in and started drinking only to find out, to, to, only to be slapped in the face with the bitterness of these waters. And some texts actually tell us that, that the word bitterness is, is a mild word, that this water was actually poisoned. And so they grumble and they complain. But I want you to notice, because you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, after all, the water is bitter. But what you, what you need to see here is that who's led them to this particular well? Who's, who's brought them to this particular place called Marah? God has. The pillar of fire and the cloud by day has led them to this well. And so their complaint, although directed at Moses, is actually a complaint against God. How dare you bring us? Do you not know we are thirsty? Do you not see our need? Do you not care? Now, with that in mind, let's just, let's just peek again at verse 22. How long was it since the Red Sea rescue? The text tells us three days. Three days since they walked on dry ground through a parted ocean. And now they are moaning at God. Don't you care? The point is this. We so easily forget. We so easily get turned in on ourselves. When hardship hits or when things don't go our way, we easily turn from singing God's praises to sinning against him. It reminded me of, of like a sports stadium. You know, sports stadiums get packed, and we haven't seen one of those for a long time. But generally, sports stadiums get packed out. Think Rugby World Cup final, and, and you've just got roaring fans, adoring fans, singing the praises of the players, singing the praises of what's happening on the field. And sometimes it's in an instant the songs of praise could go to grumbles and moans. Why? Because of the referee. The referee, what, what does he think he's doing? That's such a stupid call. And so it goes from praise to grumbling within split seconds. We've all seen it. We've all been part of it. I think I've done that. In fact, I know I've done that. And it's a human nature condition. And here we see it in stereo. The people of God are grumbling. But how does Moses respond? Well, Moses responds in desperation, Moses goes to God and he prays. And then the Lord says to him, take a log. Look at this in verse 25. The Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. I think at that point, Moses might have been hoping that God would say, throw the people in the water and let's get on with it. But no, God shows him a log. Now the word log here could be translated tree. And uh, I just want to add a bit of warning here. It's dangerous for us to over-spiritualize certain parts of the Bible. 
especially when we don't have warrant to do so. And what I mean by warrant is other scriptures to support what we are trying to say. Because I read a few commentaries and they were like, yeah, the tree therefore points to the cross. And, and that would be wonderful. And I'd love it if that were true. And no doubt there is some comparison. But the actual power of what's happening here is not in the log. The log is not what's transforming the water to become sweet. It's actually their obedience. It's actually Moses' obedience. In the Hebrew, the emphasis in verse 25 is actually on the word showed him a log. That's where the emphasis lies because here's the deal. What's powerful about this particular moment is that God tells Moses to do something completely random, completely unusual. In other words, God has appointed a tree, a tree that would have been planted many years earlier. God has appointed a tree knowing that one day his people would pass by this well and they would take a branch and they would throw that branch in, but they would never have done that unless God told them to do it. And that's the point. The Lord, verse 25, showed him the log. The Lord showed him and told him. He gave him instructions. Now, what's God doing here? Is, is this a pattern for us to follow? Maybe our wells run dry or, or maybe our government messes up and we, we don't have good, clean drinking water. Are we to take a branch from our garden and throw it? No, no, don't do that. What, what's happening here is that God is getting the people ready to listen carefully to his voice. This is a parable of sorts. It's a parable bringing them to the point where they need to learn to walk by faith in God's word and not their own ideas about him. Look at what 25 verse 25 goes on to say. It says, there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, a statue and a rule. There he tested them. There it is. He's testing them saying, verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. There is the key listening to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. You see, the water was sick and God restored it. God's word brought life to the water. I want you to notice too that the bitterness in their hearts really was only revealed by the bitterness of the water. And so God's word, when they obey God's word, it brings life and it brings blessing. Now, notice what happens next. The story's not over. God then leads them from this well of bitterness to Elam. Look at verse 27. Then... They came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, Elam was an oasis of rest and refreshing. And in my mind, I'm picturing a water park, at least in comparison with Marah, where they've just been. And my question as I was reading the text is, God, why didn't you just bypass Marah and bring them straight to Elam? And the point is, God is testing them. God is 
teaching them. God is training them. God wants them to diligently listen and not complain. He wants them to diligently follow his ways and not their own ways. And so what we see here is they camp out. The text says, and they encamped by the water. And so they camp out there for weeks. It's going to be a couple of weeks that they hang out here. And we see that the people of Israel move once again from sinning to now singing. And I think swimming. I mean, if you're going to hang out at an, at an oasis for a couple of weeks, I have no doubt in my mind the kids are playing in the water. And I think the kids are like, hey, I'll be Moses and, and you can be Pharaoh. And then there's a big fight because no one wants to be Pharaoh. But I can just imagine this is a refreshing, restful moment. Did you notice how many springs there were? Twelve. And how many palms? Seventy. This probably is literal, but the point is it's theological. You see, this is a message. Not only is this going to be rest and refreshing, but this is how God is going to structure the life of the Israelites. God is a God of order, and no doubt this was a reference to the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and the 70 elders and the 70 disciples. Whatever God does is for a reason. So you might be thinking, God, why have you taken me on this journey? Why have you brought me to this bitter well? God's doing it for a reason. Trust him. Don't trust your own thoughts. Don't trust your own ways. Trust him. Because just beyond Marah could be Elam. And so how does this all play out? Well, I think that one of those nights, probably the first night, as they camp around Elam and they set up home around Elam, around this beautiful oasis. I think at some point in the evening, as the fires were lit and food was being cooked, that the people would have gathered around Moses. And I think they would have said, hey, Moses, why don't we sing that song that you wrote? Let's sing the song of Moses. And I think Moses would have said, no. I did write the song, but it's not a song about Moses. It's actually a song about the Lamb. You see, Moses knew that this song was about a greater exodus. This song was about a greater Moses to come. And one day it will be sung by all of God's people. God's people are a singing people. But this exodus and this Moses was just a foreshadow of a greater exodus and a greater prophet who would come, Jesus Christ, who would lead us out of sin and out of death and crush the head of the serpent. And from that, we will sing his praises. And this is exactly what we find. Because when you turn to the book of Revelation, have a look at this. Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. What do we read? And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I hope that you noted in that in that refrain, in that chorus, we see all of those elements that we spoke of in the beginning. 
packed together. We see the salvation of God. We see the character of God. We see the righteous redemption of God. We see the judgment of God. And we see the glorious future of God's people where he says all nations. You see the song of Moses at that point in redemptive history. Yes, it was for Israel. But it was actually about the song of the Lamb that would include all nations. A song for all people. All people are invited to join the song of the Lamb. And so my question in closing is this. Will you join the chorus? Will you join in the anthem of praise? Because today God is inviting you. God is inviting you to join in the song of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the reminder of the privilege of song, the privilege of worship, the privilege of praising you for all that you've done, for your rescue, for your patience, for your kindness. God, you've been so gentle with us and we've been grumbling. We've been a complaining complacent people and yet you've been patient and kind and yes there are seasons that we go through where it feels like we are drinking from a well and all we get is bitter it's not a blessing it's just bitter but Lord you hold us and we know that that's not our final stop we know that you are taking us through You're bringing us into the promised land, into the land that is flowing with milk and honey, the real, true promised land where your presence dwells. And so, Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us not to grumble, not to complain, but to trust. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so right now, Lord, we want to join in the song of the Lamb. And we want to sing God's praises as a people who've been rescued from all different nations. As the church of God throughout all generations, we lift our voices to you today, Lord. And we say there is none like you. You alone are God. And you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this last song together. Let's bring a song of praise to the Lord.